this is chapter 28 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, our Steve Scott sits down with the neuropathologist who first linked football to chronic traumatic encephalopathy, more commonly known as CTE. Then we lighten things up with this week's beach read from the aptly named Karen Slaughter. Dr. Bennett Amalu first identified CTE during an autopsy of NFL Hall of Famer Mike Webster in 2002. His findings rocked the football world and eventually became the subject of the 2015 movie Concussion. He recently visited our studios to talk with our Steve Scott about his new book, Truth Doesn't Have a Side. Let's start with this. In brief layman's terms that a non-neuropathologist might understand, what is CTE? Well, CTE It's a type of brain damage which has no cure. It's permanent. It's caused by blows to the head. And following the blows, the greater the number of blows you have, the greater the risk of developing CTE. And you may not suffer any symptoms for 5, 10, 20, sometimes up to 40 years then suddenly you would begin to have very subtle but progressive symptoms that eventually would progress to a full-blown dementia. Many of the symptoms would include major depression, um, memory impairment, you begin to forget things, inability to engage in very complex thinking, inability to control your moods, irrational behavior, social improprieties, sexual improprieties, tendencies to engage in violent behavior, in criminal behavior, and so many other symptoms. But CTE is just one type of brain damage. There are so many other types of brain damage that follow trauma to the brain. I want to talk more about CTE and and contact sports-related brain damage in a moment. But first, the book, Truth Doesn't Have a Side. You've written books before. Why this book now? Why this book? You know, I never wanted to write this book. (laughs) Just like uh, I never wanted to meet Mike Webster. But after the movie Concussion, uh, many parents started reaching out to me to ask me questions about their children playing contact sports. And I began to receive so many emails, very sad emails of parents whose kids have suffered some type of brain damage from playing football, ice hockey, boxing, mixed martial arts. And many times, most of these uh, parents would tell me that they never knew. That even if they had known, they had no reference book they could have bought to read that would fully, sincerely explain the issues concerning football without any spin. So my agent actually approached me and convinced me to write a book. He said that he would get me a ghostwriter to help me, but we're <laughs> afraid of you know, writing a book. It's not easy. So I said, okay, if you do that, I'll write it. And uh, he got me a a ghostwriter. I wrote the book, and the ghostwriter came in, took what I wrote, and polished it up to professionalize it. Mm -hmm. You talk about getting emails from parents. You're a dad. You have two children, a son. What would you say to parents 
who ask you, Dr. Malu, my child has come to me and wants to play football. They say all the other kids are playing football. I want to play football. What would you say to those parents? Like I, I said in the book, which I, I strongly encourage every parent to buy this book. If I may, please, Dave, um, you know, talk about my faith. I'm a Christian. I practice my faith in my science, my science and my faith. You know, when I had my first daughter, my first child, my only daughter, Ashley, she's nine years old now, I wept. Because it suddenly dawned on me that as a parent, when you conceive a child, God invites you in to partake in creation. And God gives you a gift of his spirit and a gift of life in your child. And as a parent, I've, I've discovered that I, I do everything within my means to nourish my child, to protect my child, and to help my child become whoever God created him or her to be. So having said that, if I encounter any factor that I know could be harmful, could be harmful to my child, what do I do? I protect my child from that harmful factor. So if if my child comes to me, oh, daddy, I want to play football, I want to play ice hockey, I want to play mixed martial arts. I would imagine in my head, what if my son comes to tell me, oh, daddy, I want to smoke. What do I say? I tell him, oh, honey, smoking is dangerous for you. I can't let you smoke. Or, Daddy, I want to drink a glass of cognac. No, honey, alcohol damages your brain. I'm not going to let you drink alcohol. Now, which is more dangerous, a stick of cigarette or a concussion of the brain? Obviously, a concussion of the brain. So if my son comes and asks me, Oh, Daddy, can I play football? Oh, Daddy, I want to play football. Everybody's doing it. I would say, No, honey that football is potentially dangerous for you. It can damage your brain and rob you of your intelligence, the essence of who you are. Honey, why don't you play the non-contact sports? Track and field, I run 100 meters races, um, swimming, volleyball, basketball, badminton, lawn tennis, table tennis, and so many of them. If you visit the website of the International Olympic Committee, there, there are hundreds of non-contact sports. And non-contact sports would provide your child whatever the high-impact, high-contact collision sports would provide, but will even do more for your child, would preserve the intelligence of your child. So every parent out there should know that if your child plays the high-impact, high-contact collision sports. The big six are football, ice hockey, mixed martial arts, boxing, wrestling, and rugby. There is a 100%, and I repeat it, 100% risk exposure to permanent brain damage. It doesn't mean you will have permanent brain damage, but you are exposed to that possibility. You're exposed, you're reasonably exposed to that possibility. And what happens? Science over the centuries have shown that if your child plays these games and suffers blows to the head, 
suffers sub-concussions and concussions. Your child has a much greater likelihood of dying before the age of 42, especially through violent means. Your child is about two to four times more likely than the general population to commit suicide. Your child is about two to four times more likely to develop major psychiatric illnesses, including major depression. Your child is more likely to suffer disinhibition syndromes. What we mean by that, he becomes more violent, is more likely to engage in criminal behavior, in sexual indiscretions, and social indiscretions. Your child is less likely to attain his God-given academic or intellectual um, level or capacity. Blows to the head would rob your child of his intelligence, his intuition, and make him less functional as an adult, will make him less employed or less gainfully employed, and will make him more likely to be a recipient of uh, welfare payouts or disability payouts. And this has been very well established in the literature dating back hundreds of years. This is not something new. But I think as a society, science tells us that we evolve. And as we evolve, we become more intelligent. And as we become more intelligent, we give up the less intelligent things of the past. For example, mankind of 2017 is more intelligent than mankind of 1817. Okay? And again, the congruence of science and faith. What does faith also tell us? I'm a Christian. The scripture tells us that we must most gladly give up the things of the past, the old self, and embrace the new self in the renewal of our minds, in the holiness and righteousness of the truth. When you first began your CTE research, Mike Webster was the first Terry Long, Andre Waters, three cases established a, a, a trend, as you say in the book. But as you published papers or tried to publish papers on it, you received pushback, not only from the NFL, which I guess might be surprising and not might not be surprising because it's it's their cash cow, but also from others in the medical profession. Why did you receive pushback? Why, why were your papers opposed, ignored, rejected? You know, I, I truly do not mind the NFL coming after me. You know, the NFL accused me of engaging in criminal behavior and requested that my paper be retracted. But what really hurt me most was the treatment I received from my fellow doctors. And in my life, I've, I've struggled with depression and low self-esteem. That could have pushed me over. Um, even the National Institute of Health, even professional organizations, I was ostracized, ridiculed, dismissed. Even some of them denied that I did not discover CTE. They were just beating around the bush. But I, I spent years thinking about that. Why? In fact, I, I even wondered why me? Because, Steve, I was a foreigner. I am a foreigner, though I'm an American now. 
I was young. I was only three months outside my training as a neuropathologist. I was a nobody. I was a buffoon of football, a totally glue ramos. I, I did not know what a touchdown was. I did not know what a quarterback was. I did not know what the NFL stood for. So why would it take such an individual to discover this disease in America's most popular sport? Okay? And even when I published my findings, American, American physicians rejected me. It's actually something very well established in science. It's called the central limit theorem. And it says in every measurable link, index of human behavior that we humans have a tendency to cluster towards a certain expectation about 97% of us. Confirmational intelligence, intelligence <laughs> as you call it in the book. Yes, confirmational intelligence. And once you do not conform to that certain expectation, you are an outlier, you are an outsider. I, I wonder the fact that you were born in, in Nigeria, you came to America as a young man, a young adult man. You didn't grow up watching football. Did you have a more open mind, a clearer head when it came to CTE research, as opposed to someone who maybe grew up in this country watching every Sunday or Saturday, if they like college football, who maybe, even if they saw it, did not want to see it? Yes. In fact, people have come to me to tell me that if I had grown up in this country, there was no way I could have performed an autopsy on my Webster. Because I, I would have been so much in awe of his body. Okay. But because I had no conformational cast of the mind about football, I was thinking objectively and clearly. I had no reason to do his autopsy. We knew why he died. But uh, as uh, a Christian scientist, I saw him as a brother of mine because the humanity of my science tells me that we all are members of one another. Whatever I do for you, I do for myself and for all of us. So I saw Mike Webster. There were so many questions that did not have answers. Why? So I did his autopsy. I examined his brain, it looked normal. I saved it, spent my own money to find out the truth, okay? So, if I had grown up in this country, who knows? I could have uh, uh, been suffering from conformational intelligence around football, which is what I define as a phenomenon whereby your intelligence, your intuition, your mentality, your world thinking, perception of your environment, interpretation of your environment is controlled by expectations traditions, norms, cultures of society without you being aware of it. And then when objective evidence is provided to you, just like I did, to refute the cast of your mind, you reject it, deny it, and become emotional. But I wonder, could other neuropathologists have seen exactly what you saw? And maybe deep in their brains, they knew what they were seeing. They were identifying CTE. But because they were raised on football, they would not believe it. Well, in my research, because outside of my website uh, uh, autopsy, I, I thought that would, that would be solved, that somebody would have seen it. And to my utter shock, I actually discovered that autopsies were rarely performed 
on NFL players. That autopsy is not just NFL players. We are almost never performed on prominent athletes. Again, that awe. So maybe because I, I was an outsider, I did not get to the confirmations of society. Maybe I was still conforming to the Nigerian standards. Who knew? <laughs> okay. So, in, in fact, some doctors criticized me that, look, I should not be trusted. I'm a foreigner. I'm inexperienced. I'm too young. I don't have any established body of work. I do not understand football. But what they thought were my weaknesses in my mind and heart were actually my strengths. Because they enabled me to be independent and to think objectively. Not clouded. Yes. And as I continue to do today, for example, about 10, 12 years ago, I said that every professional football player who's played will manifest some degree of brain damage. I was laughed at. Do you still believe that to be true? Of course. High school, uh, even youth football? Every child who plays at least one season of football or ice hockey or other games has suffered some degree of brain damage. The longer you play, the more serious it becomes and the more severe. If you play up to the professional level, I guarantee you 100% of every professional football player would have permanent brain damage of a certain type, of a certain degree. It must not be CTE. That is my emphasis. I believe that because of the truth of the facts. What I'm saying today has been established centuries ago. And when I hear people say, oh, the science is not yet clear, that's an alternative truth. Truth doesn't have a side. Truth doesn't have a side. <laughs> Our time together is limited, so I, I want to <laughs> get to uh, the final chapter, the afterword of your book. is titled, I Bet My Medical License That O.J. Simpson Has CTE. You believe that to be true? Well, I, I can't talk about individual persons, um, you know, because of the ethics of medicine, but I'll, I'll say two things. I do not think any child under the age of 18 in America today, should play football, ice hockey, mixed martial arts, boxing, wrestling, and rugby. Why do I, given what we know today, why do I say that? If your child plays, your child will suffer brain damage. O.J. Simpson was a member of a cohort, of a population cohort, professional football players. 100% of professional football players have suffered brain damage. So this is why I, I seriously encourage every parent to buy this book. If given the opportunity, would you like to examine O.J. Simpson's brain postmortem and, and, and see what you find out? I, I wouldn't reach out for it because this has never been about my, me. But if O.J. Um, looks at my work and what I have done and believes in my integrity and sincerity and in the humanity of my faith and science and reaches out to me, why not? 
I'll do what I did for Mike Webster and for many other retired players and families. For him, I'll treat him like I would treat my brother. He's, he's my brother. I'll close with this. In the film Concussion, the role of Bennett Amalu was played by Will Smith. Not bad, huh? Will Smith, <laughs> my, my life was transformed by Will Smith. I was very shocked. The first day I met Will Smith, we had dinner at the Bel Air Hotel in uh, Beverly Hills. I, I had this mental image of a very big, prominent movie star who would be pompous and arrogant and belittle me. I was shocked. I spent several months with Will Smith. Will Smith is one of the most beautiful, kindest, sensitive human beings you would ever meet. Did he capture Bennett Amalu? Definitely. He, there was a day, there was a day, let me tell you this story. He came to see me. So he was walking behind me, I was leading. And then suddenly, I thought somebody, I, I had myself, and I wondered, oh, who is this? And I turned, it was him. He was speaking like me, okay? <laughs> so I'm like, hi, oh my gosh, look at, he said, don't worry about it, Bennett, I'll do you justice. And he did me justice. I'm, I'm deeply, deeply grateful to him. His new book is called Truth Doesn't Have a Side by Zondervan, the, the book available wherever uh, fine books are sold. Dr. Bennett Amala, we thank you for joining us today. Thank you, so thank much, you very Steve. much. Bless you. We've posted the video of our interview on our YouTube page. Find it at youtube.com slash WCBS 880. This week's beach read is The Good Daughter by Karen Slaughter. And yes, that is her real name. The New York Times describes it as a hell-raising thriller driven by strong-willed female characters. She called me from her book tour stop in Arizona to talk about it. What was your inspiration for writing The Good Daughter? Well, you know, it's really hard to pinpoint one specific thing that makes me ready to tell a story. Uh, so there was a series of different things going on. One was that I had this idea for the character of Gamma, uh, who's the mother in The Good Daughter. They call her Gamma because she was a scientist. She worked at Fermilab and at NASA in the 50s and 60s, which was a really difficult time for women in science. I mean, not that it's so great now, but it was really horrible back then. And she gave up that life to move back home and take care of her parents. And she had two children she loved and married a very complicated man who happened to be a lawyer. And so that, that was really how it started for me was with Gamma and thinking about her daughters and her husband and what she gave up and what she gained from moving back to her hometown. And your book features two sisters, Charlie and Sam, and you've written about sisters before, but how is this book different? Well, I would say primarily um, because the sisters are very different sisters. You know, when I wrote about sisters in Pretty Girls, um, they were very similar in their outlook on life and what they wanted to do with their lives. But in this novel, The Good Daughter, you know, they're, they're, they're strange and they live very far away from each other because of the tragedy that they both experienced when they were young girls. Charlie was 13 and Sam was 15 when this awful thing happened. Their father is a lawyer uh, and he's the kind of lawyer everybody hates because he'll defend anyone. He doesn't care what they've done. 
uh, or how guilty they are or how horrible they are. You know, they could be a murderer or a mobster or anything like that, just the, the worst people we can think of in society. And there was blowback from that, and the girls witnessed it firsthand. And it was really an opportunity for me to talk about that sudden, shocking violence and how it really influenced them for the rest of their lives. So most of the book is catching up with them when they're almost into their 40s. And, uh, you know, once you reach that age as a woman, you kind of look back and think what went wrong. And so that's where they are in their lives. So Charlie is the obvious choice for the title of good daughter. But do you feel that Sam could wear wear that mantle as well? I think so. You know, I don't particularly believe there is one good daughter in the book. Um, I think they're both good in their own ways. And also, you know, they want to honor their parents. They want to do something that they feel like uh, makes up for their, the sacrifices that their parents made along the way. And in some cases, they want to kind of rebel against their parents by doing something different. So in a lot of ways, they're they're typical children. You know, a lot of kids define themselves based on what their parents are and are not. And the fact is, most of the time, I mean, probably all the time, your parents love you anyway. As long as you are living your life and you're happy, that makes you a good child. So we have Charlie, we have Sam, we have Gamma. They're three very strong-willed women. Would you describe your story as almost, you know, a story about accomplished women? Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, And, you know, the thing is, society is wired to celebrate those traits in men. You know, we reward men who are driven, who are smart, who are the top of their field. It's something we celebrate. With women, it can be a lot more complicated. And I'm not painting men as the bad guys here, because a lot of times as women, we're the, we're, we're the only people who can look at a photograph of another woman and just hate her without even meeting her, right? So I, I wanted to talk about how difficult it is uh, for Charlie and Sam as adults. You know, they're both lawyers. They're in very different fields. They're both successful. And they both reached a point in their lives where they are um, kind of thinking about the choices they've made. Uh, And of course, since this is a thriller, something really bad happens in their present day lives and it makes them have to confront each other and figure out how they're going to move on. So we have a story here filled with complicated characters and complicated relationships, and it all happens in a town where everyone knows everyone's business. Is, Is there a particular character or relationship that you enjoyed exploring? Well, I really love Charlie. And, you know, the thing is, she has a great husband that she's really upset. I won't give away what happened between them because that's kind of a mystery. But, you know, I wanted to write about a husband who a a woman who really loved her husband. Oftentimes, the husband's the bad guy in books and the good guy is the woman who takes the woman away from him and sweeps her off her feet or something romantic like that that seldom happens in real life. And I wanted her to be really focused on the fact that she loves Ben, her husband, and she wants to do anything she can to get him back, but she doesn't realize that she has a lot of work to do just on herself before she can be uh, back in that relationship with him. And I read an interesting story as well about uh, why you were so eager to write the character of Rusty Quinn, who's their father. Yeah, you know, it came out of a conversation I had with uh, Greg Isles. We were at a, a dinner for Thriller Fest, which is a great festival for thriller writers. It takes place in New York in July every year. Um, and the the night 
that we were having this dinner, literally everyone's phone at the table lit up with an alert because the New York Times had just published the excerpt from Ghost Set a Watchman, right? And we all learned basically at the same time that in the previous iteration of To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus Finch had gone to a Klan meeting. And Greg, who's from Mississippi, I'm from Georgia, Greg said, you know, I don't believe that, that wouldn't be right. A man of his intelligence and his family and his breeding and his standing in the community would not do that. And I had just researched uh, about a murder in Atlanta in the early 1900s of a man named Leo Frank. He was uh, from the North. He was Jewish. He managed a pencil factory. There's a great movie about this, actually. Uh, And a young girl named Mary Fagan was raped and murdered. And they pinned the crime on him because he was the new guy and he was Jewish. And they ended up lynching him. And there's a photo of the lynching. And in front of this hanging dead body of a man, the murderers are standing very proudly in front of him. And you see the son of a state senator, a congressman, the chief of police, a lot of police officers, a judge. And and they're staring right at the camera. They have no qualms about that. And, And I thought, you know, The thing about the South, or I guess any region in America, is there's who we are and there's who we think we want to be. And so I wanted to write not just about that, but about the the perspective that Scout has on uh, Atticus Finch when he she's a young girl is very different from the one she has when she's an adult. You know, in To Kill a Mockingbird, he's a saint. And in Ghost Set a Watchman, he's a very complicated man. And I wanted Charlie and to some degree Sam to have that transition. You know, when they're young girls, they kind of idolize their father. Uh, and as adults, they see why people have so many problems with them. And that's almost something that I guess happens to everybody as they get older and they see their, their parents from a grown-up set of eyes. Absolutely, you know, and and your parents see you differently. I was talking to someone the other day about sister relationships, and she said, you know, the great thing about sister relationships is your family really knows you, but the awful thing is that they only know you at a certain time in your life, and they just assume that when you go off into the world that you don't change much from who you were when you were a kid. And I think that's true, and that's something I write about in The Good Daughter. You know, Sam and Charlie haven't seen each other for years, and they get back together, and they're having the same fights they had when they were 13 and 15 years old. It's definitely true, and also is why holidays are so awkward for a lot of people. (laughs) Exactly. So I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, I know that the Save the Libraries Foundation is something that's near and dear to you. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and how you got involved? Sure. You know, I started this charity uh, a little after the recession in 2008 because our depression, whatever they're calling it. A a lot of towns in response to uh, not having a lot of money decided to close libraries and fire librarians and cut back hours. And um, they did it at a time when the libraries were needed the most. And many politicians, even though they grew up in libraries themselves, or most of them are lawyers, make of that what you will. So they have certainly, through their educational career, availed themselves of libraries. They kind of have this amnesia about how important libraries are to communities. I mean, and and they don't really know what goes on in libraries anymore. So a lot of kids in rural communities, for instance, their only access to reading or to the internet outside of school is the library. So, you know, if you think about a kid living in a town of 
five or six thousand people and there's no library, there's no internet, how's he gonna do his homework? How's she going to be able to connect with the rest of the world? You know, I mean there are places in America that you can't even get cell phone service, right? And and at home people are still on dial up. So there are a lot of people who are be left, being left behind, especially children. And having a library in town, having access to those things can really be life-altering. Um, and, and it can actually change the growth of a child's brain. There's a, a finite amount of time for a child to become a fluent reader. And if they don't learn it during this time period, they never will be fluent in reading. And what's more, they develop pathways in their brains for critical thinking that they would not otherwise develop if they weren't reading. So we're literally stunting the growth of of children's brains if we're not supporting libraries and making sure everybody has free and open access. So it was really important to me to do all I could. And of course, you know, I know a lot of authors and they all were very generous with their time going to fundraisers, trying to get money, donating stories, that kind of thing, uh, to help us support libraries. And to date, we've given away over $300,000. And what can people do if they want to help you out? Well, I always say, you know, Save the Libraries is really author-driven. But if you live in a town that has a great library, I guarantee you, you can go to one of the towns next door and they don't have a great library system and they really need funds. And if you help that library, subsequently you're helping your community because the fact is that over 75% of kids in the juvenile justice system are functionally illiterate. So helping kids in a community where there's not a great system and and turning that system around is going to save taxpayers so much money in the long term. So if you think about it from a purely financial point of view, we need kids who read, who do well in school, who go to college, who graduate and get better jobs, higher paying jobs, and then they pay higher taxes and the cycle continues. We've been talking with Karen Slaughter. Her new book is called The Good Daughter. And Karen, I can't let you go without saying your name is tailor-made for thriller writing. (laughs) Yeah, it's good I'm not writing romances. And that's a wrap. We want to hear from you. Email us at books at WCBS880.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880books.